Well, this morning we're continuing our series, Meals with Jesus, and today we come to the fourth of eight messages that we've planned, looking at various meals in Luke's gospel. And today we're in Luke chapter 14, and so I invite you to turn there if you'd like to follow along. Uh, It can be found printed on page 8 in your bulletin, or if you're following along in a pew Bible, it's on page 873. When we come to Luke chapter 14, Jesus is at a meal and he tells parables about meals. And so it's really fitting that we'd be looking at this chapter together during this series. And we're going to spend two weeks on this chapter. uh, This week and next week we'll look at another parable that Jesus tells uh, at the same meal. And so we'll begin by reading Luke 14. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 so we have the context, and then today's sermon will focus primarily on verses 7 through 11. So hear God's word in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask our Lord's help as we consider it this morning. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to hear your word this morning with hearts that are full of faith. We confess that we can be distracted by many things, and we ask that you, by your Spirit, would enable us to hear, to understand, and to be changed by your word as we behold more clearly our Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. It's in his name that we ask these things. Amen. Is choosing your seat a difficult process for you? Uh, One of the things that I've been considering as we've been back inside for worship is, is now the time to pick a different seat? And I can tell some of you are trying out new spaces or um, maybe trying to figure out the best spot. What helps you as you choose your seat? What do you consider? I think many times we're driven by some practical issues, pragmatic concerns, right? Temperature is one of my big concerns. If you're wondering about that in the chapel, Vern knows the temperature of each seating location. So if that's problematic, Vern Niccolo can help you with that. 
Um, so it could be temperature, it could be your ability to see, it could be accessibility, it could be who you're sitting by, it could be that it's the only seat left when you get here. There can be all kinds of reasons and factors of why we sit where we sit, especially at a worship service. Well, in Jesus' day, where you sat at meals was far from being just a practical or pragmatic issue. It was actually all about status. Where you sat at a meal like the one described in our text was an indicator of where you stood in society. Can you imagine that, being able to come here to church and just look based on where people are sitting and say, this is where they are in society? Or to go into someone's house and you just look around, well, here's where I fall in the strata of this group that's here. You see, many times at meals like this, there would be a table and the people would be reclining around the table and they'd have three couches, they called them. They're more like benches that you could lean on while you're eating. And those would be arranged in a U form. And if you're sitting at the top of the U, kind of the center of the U, that's the highest status. And as you go out from there on both sides, that's showing lower positions of status as you've gathered around the meal. And it works similarly with large banquets and feasts. The closer you were to the guests of honor, the more honor or value you had in that society. And so this is the context where we find Jesus at this meal. Far different from just gathering around the table and thinking, um, where is there a place for me uh, at this meal? And so this morning, we're going to walk through the passage. You'll notice, um, if you're following along in the bulletin, it's just a blank outline. So for those of you who like structure or to take notes, uh, we're going to walk through the passage, and then there are three applications as we consider what it tells us about Jesus as we conclude. So that's where we'll be going. So first of all, we'll consider the setting of this parable as it takes place. Chapter 14, verse 1 tells us that Jesus is dining at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. So this is the third time that Jesus has come to a Pharisee's house in Luke's gospel. This time, though, it's a ruler of the Pharisees. He was probably higher in his class and standing. And what that probably meant is that the guests who were there were probably all religious elite for the most part. They were Pharisees and lawyers, um, which are basically the Bible scholars of the day who had gathered around for this meal. And so it it was customary then that Jesus, as this traveling teacher, could be invited to this religious circle and they would really be vetting him during their dinner conversation. It would be a way for the religious rulers to really check out this rabbi and see if what he says is orthodox or not. And so he's dining at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. But secondly, we notice it was Sabbath. Now, Sabbath began at sundown on Friday and went to sundown on Saturday. And it was the day set apart for worship and rest. This is probably that Friday evening meal, the Sabbath meal that they would have at the end of the week that would begin a day of worship and commemoration of God's deliverance um, from Egypt and also just God's daily care for them. And so this setting that he's in a religious leader's house and it's the Sabbath, there's a few reasons that this is important. One of the reasons is related to the healing of the man with dropsy. 
And we'll talk about that a little bit later, but what we can know up front is that the Pharisees had added a bunch of rules about the Sabbath, and Jesus didn't agree with all those extra rules. And so healing this man with dropsy was very significant in how it confronted their religious scruples. But the fact that it was the Sabbath day also sets the stage for the conversation that takes place in in Jesus' parable as well. Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is really, in short, just how God's people should live under God's rule. And Jesus, as a teacher, was proclaiming that. And the Sabbath meal was, at its core, a religious meal. Really, it should be a glimpse, a foretaste of what God's kingdom is like. It took place on God's day the day that's set apart for rest and worship. It was with God's people. And as we think about this dinner, it's with who are supposed to be the top of God's people, the religious leaders of the day, those most devoted to the things of God. This should be a glimpse of heaven. And yet what happens is when God in the flesh, when Jesus Christ shows up at this meal, He sees that this is not at all the way God's kingdom works. And he addresses this problem with a parable. And so he tells then a parable about choosing your seat. He tells a parable about choosing your seat. And we notice, first of all, Jesus' observation that brings this about. And we find that there in verse 7. It says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Notice what's happening here. Jesus, as he comes to this meal, is watching what takes place. He's observing people's actions. And something stood out to him. And what stood out to him was that there was a lot of effort being put into choosing places of honor and trying to figure out how to get to those most important seats. In our scripture reading that Hank read uh, this morning from Matthew 23, it actually gives us even more insight into what's going on. Matthew 23 comes later in Jesus' ministry where he actually calls out the Pharisees for what was really going on in their hearts, their love of the places of honor. Did you hear it in that text how they want the best seats, they want the highest titles, They do their deeds of piety to be seen by other people and for the status that it brings them as religious people of the day. And so in this context of everybody sizing up their status and figuring out where they fit, Jesus addresses the room with a parable. He tells a hypothetical story about going to a wedding feast. And really, verses 8 and 9, he he begins by explaining what not to do when you come to this wedding feast. Notice verses 8 and 9. He says, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. And so at this wedding feast, there's freedom for where you sit. Uh, The honorable seats were probably already assigned, but then as guests would come, they could choose their seat. And so you would come and you would naturally size up the room 
and you would figure out where you fall in relation to who's there and who's not there. And so you look around, you determine your place, and you choose your seat. But there's a risk to this, isn't there? What if someone more important than you hasn't shown up yet and you calculate wrongly? And actually, that's a really likely risk in a situation like this because those who had the most status, those who had the most clout were often the last to show up. Why? Because they had lots of stuff going on and they were also the ones who were almost doing the host a favor by gracing them with their presence that elevated the status of the whole festival altogether. And so it's very likely that someone with very high status is going to come through those doors when you've already chosen your seat. And so if, that's, if that happens, then what is the host to do? He can't shame this honored person by having them pick a different seat. He has to make sure they receive the seat that fits with their honor. And so he asks you to then relocate. And if this happens and everybody's coming in and finding their place, what seats are going to be left? The lowest seats, right? So as you have to relocate, you take the walk of shame all the way to the lowest seats. Now, I have to be honest. When I hear this, I think, okay, big deal. It's one dinner. It's a wedding reception. You're on to the next party. Um, What's the big concern? Yeah, that was a bummer, um, but it's all going to be okay. But verse 9 really cues us in to the weight of what's going on there, right? He says, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. That's a long way of saying you go to that seat. You begin with shame to take the lowest place. We often speak of shame as the feeling that we have, the psychological experience of not measuring up. And that's an aspect of shame, right? We feel shame. We feel like our worth has been devalued. We feel that others view us in a a suspect way. In biblical times, and what's being said here, shame is really actually speaking of your social status. It's your social capital, something that actually exists. An incident like this would bring bring you shame instead of honor, and you would lose your social capital and any honor that you have accrued with having to go to the last seat. If we think about this in our context of social media, where many pursue honor and shame today, um, it it wouldn't just be that someone posted a video of you walking to the lowest seat, and that was this embarrassing thing. It would be like this video gets posted, and as a result, you lose all of your followers, all of your social clout, and that video becomes a gif that's actually a meme of what not to do and who not to invite to a party. And it just lives on the internet from now until forever. And so for those of us who aren't real concerned about that, that still sounds silly. But for some of us, it's like, oh, that would be a horrible thing. Whatever it is, this is a big deal, and you have lost your standing in society because of what took place. And so this parable that Jesus lays out actually holds out the precarious, the risky nature of seeking and preserving social status on a human level, doesn't it? It's a risky thing. And Jesus draws that out with this story. But then he goes on in verse 10 to explain what to do instead. He says in verse 10, But when you are invited... 
Go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Now, when we first read this, doesn't it sound like Jesus is really just giving social wisdom? He's kind of holding out this situation, and he's saying, why don't you just calculate a little better so you don't look so foolish? And in fact, we find wisdom like this elsewhere in Scripture. In Proverbs 25, verses 6 and 7, it says, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. And so what what Proverbs is saying is that wisdom says it's better for people to notice your wisdom or your skill and then exalt you rather than exalt yourself and pick too high of a place and have to go down. Now that's a wise principle. That's something that makes sense of the world that we live in. But notice that Jesus is not saying calculate more wisely, calculate more carefully. He's not saying figure out where you stand as you look around the room and then just pick five seats lower. No problem. That's how we think he's talking. But instead, he's not giving good advice about social status. He's speaking of a different way of viewing seating altogether. He says, go and sit in the lowest place. Now again, we may think, oh, for one meal, what's the big deal? Um, but by going and sitting in the lowest place, what does that indicate? That you are not using this situation to seek or maintain status before others at all. You've given up on that system. You pick the lowest place because you're no longer calculating the horizontal. You're no longer concerned about this earthly hierarchy, but because you consider the vertical because you have a different perspective of what's taking place. And we see this in the kingdom statement that he makes there in verse 11. He zooms out from this wedding to a principle about how the world really works and how God really sees things. He says in verse 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He says that the way God views things is that if we exalt ourselves, God himself will humble us. If we humble ourselves before God, it brings honor and exaltation. Now, this word humbling, this idea of humbling ourselves, is important for us to understand as well. Because some of this, and some of us, and especially in this context that he's speaking of, when we hear shame and when we hear finding the lowest seat, we may hear humbling ourselves and think of humiliating ourselves. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying it's saying that you're worthless or speaking in a self-deprecating way. Humbling yourself, as Jesus is speaking about here, is coming to a real sober assessment of who you truly are and what your status is before God. That's what it means to humble yourself before God. And so do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's not just giving social advice about how to calculate your seat. He's saying that the reason that you could attend a wedding feast and take the lowest seat is because you now see the room as God sees the room. 
that before God, none of us has status of which to claim. And then you're coming to realize that in God's economy, those who have humbled themselves before him are the ones who are exalted by him. And so we've looked for a bit at what this parable means and what the context of it is. I find for myself it's still rather abstract uh, and it's still a little bit difficult to understand. But that's where it's so beautiful that as we now consider how Jesus shows us its truth, I think it becomes even more clear. And so we'll look at three things that Jesus shows us about this truth that he has just spoken of. The first thing that we realize is that Jesus himself was not concerned about his seat. Jesus was not concerned about his seat. Think about that room that night in the house of the religious leader. Who was the person who deserved the seat of honor? (laughs) Who at every meal, every setting, would deserve the place of honor? It's Jesus himself. And yet, when he came into that Pharisee's house, he was not at all concerned with status or standing. Instead, he was assured of his father's love. And his attention was fully fixed on honoring his father by loving those who were there. What a different way to live. How striking that contrast must have been to those religious leaders who were all concerned about who's saying what and who's there and where they're sitting and how they measure up. I love how in verse 2, as as we go back to kind of the setting of this, at the end of verse 1, it's telling us that the religious leaders, they were watching Jesus. They're sizing him up. But then we get Jesus' perspective. And, it, and Luke bursts in and says, Behold, there was a man before him with dropsy. Behold, notice this. Pay attention. This is what caught Jesus' eye. There was a man before him. Not all these people fighting for their seats. And this man before him was a man with dropsy. Now, this is the only account in the Gospels of someone with dropsy. And it it may be a term we're not familiar with. I know that I have been thinking about this wrongly my whole life. I thought it was speaking of something different uh, and associated it with a different healing. But dropsy is a condition where your body can't process fluids. And so you become bloated and swollen because your body can't get rid of the fluids that it's intaking. And it's caused by, we now know it's caused by underlying diseases, but for them, they would speak of it in this way and didn't know what was causing it most of the time. And the difficulty of this is that you would still be thirsty. Your body is still telling you you need fluids. And yet, since it's not getting rid of those fluids, this could actually become fatal as you eventually died from essentially drinking too much. And so Jesus, as he comes to this party, he sees this man there suffering, swollen, embarrassed, uncomfortable, and yet still thirsty. He knows that if he takes a drink at this party, everyone's going to assume that that's his whole problem and he can't control himself. And so Jesus, with this man before him, healed him. And he did so even though it was the Sabbath. He knew full well that in loving this man and bringing healing to him immediately, 
that it would guarantee that he would lose all his status among the Pharisees. He would be out because he broke their scruples. But you see, Jesus that day, that night, wasn't concerned about his status. He was concerned about loving the people who were before him. And it wasn't just that Jesus came that night ready to love the man with dropsy. Even his address to the Pharisees, his words to them, were out of love. I think you and I would be tempted. I know I would be. I shouldn't assume your motives. I would be very tempted. If I knew the religious elite were scorning me and I were the one doing the right thing, I would want to say words to them to speak to power, to show truth, to set things right, to show how the world should really be. But Jesus isn't motivated by those things that are tainted by sin. Instead, Jesus sees the Pharisees jockeying for position, looking over their shoulder, seeing who's saying what to whom, and he sees their dropsy of soul. You see, dropsy was, it was that condition that we spoke about, but it's used all throughout literature of Jesus' day metaphorically to speak of greed. Because it's this greed is this insatiable desire that does what? It eventually kills you. And dropsy was almost this physical personification from all they understood of what greed would do to a person. And so Jesus, seeing these Pharisees, he loves them and he sees them in their spiritual dropsy, their, their relentless thirst for honor and status that would never satisfy them. And so even though he knows this would put him on the outs, he speaks words of love and offers a way forward that could really free them from the very thing that's destroying their souls. Can you imagine what it would be like to spend a meal with Jesus, to spend time with Jesus, to truly encounter someone so unconcerned about his status and unconcerned about your status that he's just there to love you in your need? What would that be like? I, I think of talking with him and, and realizing that he's never kind of looking over your shoulder to see who else is coming through the doors. You're, he's never cutting you short so he could go talk to someone more interesting than you. He's just there and there to love and to especially love those who want and need his love. He's even there loving those who want nothing to do with him. And so the question that raises for us, though, is this. Is Jesus' care any less now? Maybe we can imagine him like this at a meal, but when we find ourselves in need, when we find ourselves feeling unlovely and all lovable, unlovable, what do we implicitly think we need to do to receive Jesus' care? What, what status do we need to have that we would be able to hold his attention in our need? Is it that we have to have some record of overcoming a certain sin? Do we have to show him that we have enough of our problems in order, or especially those things we always struggle with that he's heard about over and over again? Does he want us to prove that somehow we're super spiritual or we have it all together? We read our Bibles enough or we give enough money. We're involved in enough ministries. We have enough spiritual friends around us. What is it that we think that Jesus needs to see from us in order to love and care for us in our need? 
And so part of what this whole setting and this parable teaches us is Jesus' care for you is not affected by your status, but only by your need for him. Because Jesus is not concerned about his seat or your seat, but only about honoring his Father by loving you in your need. Well, it gets even better than that, I think. Because not only is Jesus not concerned about his seat, but even more amazingly than this, Jesus offers you the best seat. Jesus offers you the best seat. Verse 11 is that kingdom principle of how things work. It says, he who humbles himself will be exalted. We saw in our study of Philippians that Jesus is the one who humbled himself and yet was exalted, right? The exalted one, the son of God, who was equal with God in the form of God and didn't consider it something to grasp or to hold on to, but instead he humbled himself. And he humbled himself not only in becoming human, think of how humbling that must be to take on a body with all its weaknesses and pain, but he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Our Lord Jesus took the lowest seat possible for anyone to take. He took on our status as condemned rebels. He willingly took the ultimate walk of shame in bearing all the sins of his people. He was crucified outside the camp. He had to be put out of the city of God and hung naked on a tree because he was bearing the curse of the people of God. And yet he did that for us. And because of that obedience and for that humility, Philippians says, God has exalted him to the highest seat. He has been given a name above every name. But what's amazing about the gospel is that that exaltation isn't just for Jesus, but it's also for all who trust in him. And you see, what Jesus is saying here is actually foreshadowing what's going to be a reality through the gospel, that when we pick the lowest place, when we stop trying to make our way to the head table and we humble ourselves before God, and we realize that we don't even deserve a heavenly seat because of our sin. We have no status to claim. Even the status that we have as image bearers before God is tainted by our sin and how we misuse even that privilege. Do you know who we find there in the lowest place? We find the Lord Jesus. He meets us there in that humility and in that lowliness, not because of his sin that he needs to be there, but to save us from ours. And as we humble ourselves and come to him in that way, we are given a new seat. The gospel says that for those who are trusting in Jesus, the father comes and says to us, friend, move up higher. Isn't that amazing? You enter at this lowly seat and then he gives you a different seat. And what is that seat? It's not a seat just in the middle of the room somewhere. Cool, you're not on the bottom anymore. What is the seat that faith in Jesus Christ brings? It's the seat next to the bridegroom himself. 
It's in the highest place that we could possibly imagine where we for all eternity will be honored together with Jesus in the presence of all. Not because of our status or worth, but because of his exaltation and how we have been united to him by faith. What seat are you looking for today? Are you still trying to find value and ranking in the systems of this life? Maybe it's through your job, gaining popularity, having prestige or skills. Maybe it's this relationship and you think if you get it, you will have arrived. Or maybe you are like the Pharisees that day who realize that all all these worldly systems of measuring up, they don't work well for people who go to church. But you know what works well for people who go to church? trying to measure up among religious people. And we may be like those who have dropsy of the soul, thinking that somehow through our good works or religious actions, we would somehow be able to satisfy that craving or to save ourselves. Jesus sees you in your need, and he invites you to come to the lowest place today, to confess your sin and your need of his saving grace, and to call out to him in faith. And when you do, he saves you and exalts you to the best seat, the highest status possible, being a brother or sister of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, part of his heavenly bride. And so we see also in this that Jesus offers us the best seat. But then as we consider our final point, I want to address those of us who have been humbled before God, who have already turned in faith to Jesus. I think the question that remains for us is what seating chart are you living by? You know, uh, I think there's a real temptation for us as Christians to say, you know, that whole humbling yourself and then being exalted, that's great when it comes to coming to Christ in faith. But then the Christian life is really going back to thinking that somehow we need to gain status and be moving up in those seats, either to be noticed by others or to be noticed by God. And Jesus' truth for us today is this. Jesus invites us to join him every day in the lowest seat. You know, I naturally, I want to confess, I naturally hear these kingdom statements as a new type of law. And I wonder if I'm the only one, and I don't think that I am, uh, that these statements about the last being first and choose the lowest seat and you'll be exalted, they're really now just a Christian system for scoring points. Have you ever thought that way? Oh, now that I'm a Christian, I know that he's who's at the front of the line doesn't get the most points. It's the person at the back. And so at a potluck or something, it's like, oh, last person, 10 points, 9 points, 8 points. Sorry for you. You went first. No points for today, right? Do you ever think like that? I probably am the only one twisted enough to think that way. But also, You may have, if you've been around church long enough and been to enough potlucks, you may have observed people at the end of the line politely insisting, no, really, you go. go. I'll go last. No, No, really, no, you go before me. Now, 
I could be getting it total, totally wrong. I don't want to judge people's motives. It could be out of all sorts of things. But I feel like I have seen people's faces fall when we say, you go first, ladies first, or you're our guest, please go first. And it's, oh, no points. Maybe it's out of embarrassment. <laughs> or at the end, that whole jockeying for the highest position at the end. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that I'm the only one twisted enough to actually be doing that when I'm at the end of the line. But what I think it highlights for us is this. The gospel is so hard for us to understand, isn't it? We gravitate so much towards give me a point system. Yes, I'll come in at the lowest seat, but then let me climb that ladder again. And instead, Jesus isn't giving us a different way to act at a feast or at a potluck. He's inviting us to the gospel life of living in the lowest seat, of humbling ourselves before God every day, every moment of every day, not thinking we have to somehow prove status or worth so he'll somehow meet our needs or something, but instead coming to him in that lowest seat, humbling ourselves and genuinely saying, you know what? I have no status. I have nothing to prove. I am weak. I am broken. I am battling sin. And I need help for this and for this and for this and for this and for everything that I am facing today. And when we find ourselves there at that lowest seat, who do we find there? We find the Lord Jesus himself saying, I'm so glad you brought your burdens here because I am seated at the right hand of the Father and now have poured out my Spirit so that I can empower you to live now in whatever you're facing in the way that I lived, assured of your Father's love and care and able to freely love those he brings into our lives. He will give us what, he, what we need as we come to that lowest place. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is a call to experience the freedom of no longer needing to exalt ourselves, but moment by moment realizing that by the unfathomable grace of God, we have already been exalted and will be exalted through our Lord Jesus Christ because we are joined to him forever by faith. And so Jesus invites you to join him each day in the lowest seat. So there can be a lot of reasons to choose our seats. It can be difficult in church. It can be difficult on an airplane. It can be difficult wherever we end up having to pick a seat. But the wonderful news of the gospel is that for whoever you are, not a Christian, a new Christian, been a Christian for decades, the choice is really clear that the best seat is the seat that's with Jesus in the place of both humility and sharing in his exaltation. Isn't that amazing news? Let's thank him in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are cut to the heart by your word. We confess how often we just view things as another law and another way to prove our status. We thank you for how you see us in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would help us to grow in our awareness and our delight in the honor that you have poured out upon us as we come humbly before you each moment of the day. 
It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.